Hello everybody who's here with us so far. Hope you all are doing well. We'll give things just a minute to get started up here. I see we got some viewers pouring in, which is great. <clears throat> you hate to say here we are again, but here we are in some form and fashion again. The Facebook live stream Bible class, and we're thankful that we can do this together in this way. Just checking, making sure all my stuff is good. When I turn this thing on, it screams at me that something's going wrong, but the last time everybody assured me that nothing was going wrong, it was just lying to me. So uh, if it screams at me tonight, and it's already starting to, I'll just assume that uh, nothing's going wrong unless somebody says something is. So uh, we will go ahead and get started here with a prayer, uh, and then we will jump into our class. So let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for the God that you are. We're thankful that you are our Father. We're thankful that you've revealed yourself to us through uh, your Son, uh, that you sent him to us to, to live and to die and to, to be raised from the dead for our justification. We're thankful always for your wisdom and your love uh, and pray that we would grow to love you uh, as we continue to live on this earth. Father, we come to you tonight as a church family praying for those who are sick, uh, those who are struggling with sicknesses, with the coronavirus, with other things that are going around with various uh, problems, cancer and otherwise. We pray your blessings and your healing on those people if it's your will, Father. Uh, we pray that you would continue to be with us to keep those who aren't sick well. Uh, and we thank you so much for those who have been sick that have gotten well. We're so grateful for your graciousness towards us and those that you've allowed to return to us. Uh, Father, we also pray at this time that you would be with those uh, who are in grief, those who are in sorrow because of loss and various circumstances, and we pray that your comfort would be with them as well. Uh, again, Father, now as we study your word, we pray that you would uh, help us to do so with an open heart, with an open uh, ear to what you have to say, and pray that we would model our, our lives after what you've said to us and what you would have for us to do and after the example of your son. Uh, it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay. So let me get my all of my stuff pulled up here. Hope everybody's having a good week so far. Um, for for our part, uh, Mathis, who was the only one in our house that was dealing with any kind of sickness, really, uh, he's still got some symptoms of coughing and sneezing and that kind of thing, but on the on the whole, he's doing a lot better. Uh, not really had a fever today, so uh, we've been blessed that he's done as well as he has. Uh, we haven't had any real complications or anything like that, so we're thankful for that, uh, and we appreciate the prayers and the uh, concern that people have showed, uh, and just are so thankful to God and for you all as well. Um, tonight for our Bible class, I want to think about thinking about Jesus. Uh, that sounds kind of interesting to think about thinking about Jesus. Uh, but I think it's important. I think it's something that we should, uh, well, think about. I'll just say it, that we should think about, think about, thinking about Jesus. Uh, and so as we think about that tonight, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever meditated? And that may be an odd question, kind of not a Wednesday night at seven o'clock question, but it's, it's an honest question. Have you ever meditated? 
when most people think about meditation, uh, if you do think about meditation, I don't often, but you might think about some guru guy, uh, whether he be in India or wherever, uh, sitting in a strange position, maybe his legs are crossed, maybe his feet are touching in the middle like this. Maybe this guy's even almost just levitating an inch or two off the ground. That's how spooky this thing usually kind of seems to us. And maybe he's chanting, om, om. This is kind of what we think about when we think about meditation or somebody meditating. Uh, I can say with 100% certainty that I have never done any of that kind of meditating uh, unless I was joking about it or something <laughs> or making light of it. Uh, and I don't want to assume anything about you all. But I'm going to guess that most of you, a few people that are listening, have practiced that kind of meditation. Uh, this very showy, very mysterious and mythical kind of meditation. But we can't just toss the idea of meditation out in general. Even if that sounds very lofty, if it sounds like, well, you know, what's little old me sitting here in Jackson County, Tennessee? What business do I have meditating? We can't just throw out the whole idea of meditating because if you read through your Bible, you are going to find the concept of meditating not only mentioned, but it's actually going to be commanded of us that we meditate. Um, I think about in the book of Joshua, because in that book we see the children of Israel, they've come out of Egypt, they are about to cross the Jordan River to start the conquest of Canaan, and God is going to speak to Joshua and tell him several things. He's going to tell him to be strong and courageous, right, not to be afraid, that he can do this, uh, that God's going to do it, and he's going to be along for the ride essentially as long as he will obey God and trust in God. Um, and as God's giving him his marching orders, one of the things that he tells Joshua had to do with the written word of God, which at this point were the five books of law that God had given to Moses, the Torah, uh, the Pentateuch, whatever you want to call it. And what God told Joshua is this. He said, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. And that comes from Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. We see here that the biblical definition of meditation has something to do with God's law. Uh, that's the case that is given to us here in the first place. It has something to do with the word of God. And in particular, it has to do with thinking about the word of God with I, you know, deep thoughts. Again, it almost sounds funny to say I'm having deep thoughts. I, I've heard somebody say, you know, you sit there thinking deep thoughts, you might go off the deep end and not be able to come back up. Uh, it sounds funny sometimes. Again, we feel foolish saying, well, I'm going to go and think deep thoughts about God's word. But that's what meditation means. It means deep thinking about the word of God. And in fact, in, in the Old Testament context, in the Hebrew context, uh, it even has the idea of speaking this kind of softly out loud to yourself, uh, speaking the word of God softly out loud to yourself. Um, in other words, biblical meditation has a lot to do with thinking and talking to yourself. Now, we all think, uh, we may think at various levels of speeds and uh, levels of intelligence. I wouldn't want to know where I rank on the list. But we all think. We all spend a lot of time thinking during our day. And you might even talk to yourself during the day. Usually, uh, if I'm talking to myself, it's either to remind myself of something to help me not forget it, uh, or because I'm trying to work things out in my head. And sometimes the only person to talk to is yourself, so you have to do that. Well, take that concept and apply it to thinking about and talking to yourself about God's word. 
that's what biblical meditation, at least in the sense of Joshua chapter 1, is talking about. That's what God expected of Joshua. It's what he commanded Joshua. And I think it's what he expects of us today as well. Um, the Psalms talk about this kind of meditation. If you look in Psalms chapter 19 and verse 14, there's a very popular verse. It says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, this is maybe even more interesting to me when it comes to the thought of meditation, because what Psalm 19 implies is that God is not only wanting me to meditate, and not only is God paying attention to what I do and what I say, but God is actually judging my meditations. He's judging the way that I think. Now, again, this is not news to any of us. We know that God judges the heart as no man can. But when we really lay it out there, it can be uh, a little alarming, right? That God pays attention to what I'm thinking about, and he decides whether or not what I'm thinking about is acceptable and good and pleasing in his sight. And if that's the case, if we're going to be judged based on our thoughts, and that's what the psalm tends to imply, then suddenly what we think and how we think becomes very important, uh, very important to our Christian life and our life to pleasing God. And thankfully, because that's so important, God's word doesn't leave us hanging, right? It doesn't leave us to wonder uh, what we should think about. You know, if I'm going to be judged on my thoughts, well, then what should I be thinking about in the first place? Well, Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians 4, and again, we're very familiar with this verse, and says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things, right? So think about this type of thing. If you're going to have a thought and you want that thought to be pleasing to God, it should fall into one of these categories of, of truth, of, of being noble, of being pure, of, of virtuous things. And so now that we have this list in these categories, we could spend long hours, you know, almost debating, well, what things are in these categories, right? Well, what's true? Uh, well, obviously truth is objective, but if you got three people in a room together, you might think otherwise because we have different ideas about what the truth is, especially as it relates in our relationships with one another and how people treat us. Uh, what things are pure? What things are noble? We may have different opinions of that, but I don't think we have to debate about this because I think we have an easy answer when it comes to what does the Bible say that we should think about and it's something that fits into all of these categories easily because over and over again in the New Testament writings and in the epistles we are told to think about Jesus right think about Jesus consider Jesus look towards Jesus remember Jesus no matter what else a Christian thinks about in their life the one person that they must be thinking about constantly is Jesus. Now, again, that may seem to be a no-brainer. You may go, well, of course, we're supposed to think about Jesus. But I wonder if it's possible to live a quote-unquote Christian life without really ever thinking about Jesus that much. Uh, I think that's very possible. I think it's a very real and scary uh, terrifying danger that you could live what appears to be a Christian life, do the right things, forsake the the wrong things, right? The things we're not supposed to do, I don't do. The things I'm supposed to do, that I, I do them. Uh, I go to church service. Uh, I do all of these things, and yet I don't often think about Jesus. And you might go, well, how is that even possible? Uh, how is it possible that someone could live the Christian life in that way and not think about Jesus uh, 
if ever, rarely. I think there's a lot of reasons that this could happen, or it might happen for you or anybody, but I think the most common reason that this could happen has to do with how we think about Jesus in the first place, you know, how we really think about our relationship with him. Um, it's not unusual to hear people say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, right? Or our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And they say that well, right? Because we know there's not any other Lord and Savior but Jesus. And so they say it correctly. But sometimes when people have say that and have that mindset that Jesus is our Savior, they think about it in a very transactional way. Now, again, transactional uh, is one of those $20 words in Scrabble, but what I mean to say by that is that Jesus just happens to be a person who can help a specific problem that I have, and as long as I pay my dues to him, and whatever way I'm supposed to do that, if I follow the rules, then he will help me with that problem, the specific problem. In other words, I go to the doctor uh, in transaction, hopefully, for becoming more healthy. If I'm sick, he'll give me something to make me feel better. If I'm not sick, he'll tell me how to be more healthy in the first place. That's why I go to the doctor. I go to the dentist in exchange for having my teeth stay clean and healthy and having all the cavities filled and all that good stuff. It's very transactional, right? I don't uh, have a relationship with usually uh, a doctor or a dentist. It's very much just I go to them when I need something and that's what they're there for. Well, it can be said that some people just go to Jesus, they turn to Jesus because they have a problem, right? A, a going to hell problem. They don't want to be condemned. And so I go to Jesus so that when all is said and done, I don't roast in hell for all eternity. And you go, well, absolutely. That's the way to salvation. It's the way to uh, avoid eternal punishment. But Jesus is so much more than just a transaction, right? It's not just a transaction. He's not just a utility uh, to go to and to access uh, to help with a single problem, right? Not only is Jesus Savior and Lord, he is God. He is the creator who walked among the creation. He is the man who is God as well that can relate to me in my struggles and my temptations. He's the crucified lamb and he's the resurrected king. All of these aspects of Jesus have a part in our thinking about him and how we relate to him and how uh, we feel that we come to know Jesus and he comes to know us. And for the Christian, the benefits of Jesus go beyond just, well, one day far off into the future, on the day of judgment, Jesus will help me not go to hell. You know, that's the only benefit that Jesus offers us. Again, that's very transactional. I need Jesus for one thing. And as long as he accomplishes that, then I'm good and I'll, I'll pay my dues. But some of the greatest benefits in the here and now that Jesus offers us come from thinking about and meditating on Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus did, what Jesus does, and what he's going to do. Uh, these things are of great benefit to Christians. Um, I think about the Apostle Paul and his relationship with all of the churches that he ministered to. He founded, if you will, several congregations. He uh, converted Gentiles. He preached to Jews created all of these congregations across the Mediterranean. And as he prayed for those congregations, and we see in his letters that he often did, as he prayed for these people, it's interesting to note what Paul prayed for them, what Paul wanted them to have. Uh, and one of my favorite examples is in Ephesians chapter 3. If you look in Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14, <laughs> note what Paul says here. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, 
that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in his inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Now note this, this is the important thing that he's praying for in our context. That you may have strength to comprehend, to understand with all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, in addition to several other things for prayers of strength, for prayers of, of all kinds of benefits from God the Father and through the Holy Spirit and through the Word, is that they, together with all the saints as a group, would be able to come to the understanding of just how magnificent, how amazing, how precious and priceless the love of Jesus is. And again, the picture that Paul paints here is it's this thing kind of beyond our grasp. It's something that's beyond us. Uh, you know, and, and when I think about Paul's prayer there, I think about my own goals as a Christian. You know, is one of my goals as a Christian, when I think this is what I want to accomplish as a Christian, is one of those things I want to come to a better knowledge and understanding and just really soak in the height, the breadth, the depth, the width, of the love and the knowledge of Jesus, the love that surpasses all understanding and knowledge. You know, is that one of the things that I'm striving for? Um, and if it's not, it should be. But how do we comprehend if we're talking about diving in, you know, to the, the love of Jesus and really soaking in this idea and, and praying to come to the knowledge of this? And Paul's saying, I want you all together to come to the knowledge of this. How do we even approach this topic to begin with? You know, it's so vast and unfathomable. Um, when it comes to Jesus, right, who Jesus is and how much he loves us, well, one answer, one half of that answer is we can't. We will never be able to fully comprehend Jesus with our human mind because Jesus is God, right? Jesus is a deity, and he is beyond our grasp to that extent. On one half of the equation we have, well, we will never master Jesus, our understanding of him, uh, insofar as fully understanding how he is both God and man, how he uh, came to this earth, how he died for our sins, all of these things, we can never fully grasp it. And yet we're commanded over and over again to take the plunge and begin the process of learning who Jesus is, right? Coming to the knowledge of him, through the word of God, uh, becoming uh, more familiar with him, coming to love and know him as a, as a friend and a brother and as our savior. These are the things that God wants us to do uh, as Jesus is the way to God the Father himself. Because like Paul said in, in Colossians chapter two and verse four, and, and I love how wide this is. He says, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus. That's amazing. Again, we can think of a lot of wisdom and knowledge that we say, well, there's a lot of things you can learn about outside of Jesus, outside of church, if you will, that uh, are important, you know, but they're just not spiritual things. But Paul, the way that he thinks about the world, he says all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus. He is the source of true understanding. If you want to know how the world really is, Jesus is the place to go. Of course, you can go to a college, you can go to various people, experts that will tell you, well, this is the way that life really is. This is the way the world really works. But for the Christian, we understand that Jesus is our metric for understanding how the world really works. Because outside of him, 
we can't really understand what God's purposes for us are and what his purposes for, again, the whole of mankind is our purpose in this life as God has created us without looking and searching and meditating on who Jesus is. So just for the next couple of minutes, because uh, we're not going to tarry along here tonight, I want to think about some ways that meditating on Jesus can benefit us as Christians today, right? Something that will help us right now, something that will change our lives right now. Um, the first thing that I thought of was that it can affect the way that we view our material possessions, the money that we have, the stuff that we have. Meditating on Jesus, if, if all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in him and, and he's the one that helps us understand how the world really works and what's really important, that's going to affect the way that we think about our things and the stuff that we have. When Paul wrote to the church in Corinth and 2 Corinthians, uh, there was an issue going on in Judea where there were a lot of Christians that were poor. They were hungry. There was famine. They didn't have access to food. And so several of the Gentile churches uh, to the west, they started taking up a collection for the Christians in Jerusalem and in Judea. And when Paul wrote the, the letter of 2 Corinthians, he wanted to remind the Corinthians uh, of this gift that they had, uh, again, he had already talked to them about it. He wanted them to give generously uh, to the people that were suffering back in Judea. But know what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, because again, the, the idea of money and money problems and money issues feels very earthly. It feels very grounded. It feels like uh, sometimes there's not very much of a spiritual aspect to it. But note how Paul ties the gospel into this money problem or the question of giving. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, he says, For you know, you comprehend, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And so Paul says the way that you think about Jesus, you think about the gospel, you think about the fact that, that Jesus, deity, eternal God, took on flesh, that he became a man, just so that we could be blessed, not for him to gain anything, but so that we could gain everything. He said that should change the way that you think about your money. That should change the way you think about your willingness to give, even giving to the point where, hey, this may really affect me, right? I, I may give so much that I have to suffer for the amount that I'm giving. I might have to go without. For some of us, we think, well, that's uh, unacceptable. That's unbelievable. I would never give so much that now it's uh, I'm becoming poor. But Paul says that's exactly what Jesus did. That's what he was willing to do, and it's what he did for your sake. And so, I want you to think about that, Paul tells the Corinthians, when it comes time for you to give to people who need it, people who uh, are poor and without and without hope. Jesus did that for you. Are you willing to do it for somebody else? And so, again, just thinking about Jesus will change the way that you look at your money. You know, what really matters? What am I striving for in life? Well, for Jesus, there was nothing that wasn't his. He's God. And yet he was willing to lower himself, to give, uh, to become destitute, if you will, for the sake of others. And that changes the way that we look at our stuff. It changes the way that we look at what's important around us uh, in our life. Another way that this can help us is I, I think that meditating on Jesus will change the way that we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, we will treat our fellow Christians better if we meditate on Jesus 
Because, again, you might think that meditating on Jesus in large effect only matters to our relationship with him. But the Bible teaches that our relationship with Jesus not only changes our relationship vertically with God, it also changes our relationship horizontally with all of God's children and our fellow Christians. When I think about Romans 14, uh, Romans 14 is a chapter that talks a lot about matters of judgment, if you will, and personal opinion uh, in the Christian life. And some of these matters, some of these decisions made a big splash in the first century church. Um, it led to lots of disagreement and lots of fighting, uh, lack of love in nice terms, hatred in other stronger terms, between God's children. There was just a lot of strife over some of these issues. And one of those issues came to the matter of eating meat. Um, and whether we're talking about you know meat versus being a vegetarian or meat offered to idols, as Paul sometimes referred to, um, Christians were divided over the matter of eating certain meats. And while the eating of meat was in and of itself not sinful, uh, Paul was not arguing that eating a certain kind of meat was sinful in this case, the real problem came in the attitude of those on either side of the debate, whether it was, and really especially in Romans 14, those who knew that it was okay to eat meat, uh, in their dealings with those that were weaker in faith, uh, or those who thought that it was not right to eat meat. Because Paul really frames the question perfectly in Romans 14. Uh, let's, let's turn there really quickly. Romans 14, starting in verse 14. Look at how Paul frames this question. Uh, he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. In other words, there's nothing unclean or sinful about meat. Uh, but he goes on to say, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Man, that is a debate killer. Uh, you, you're going to instantly lose the debate if you say, well, Paul, you don't understand. He, he's wanting to judge me for eating meat. Uh, he's wanting to say I'm doing something wrong. And I know and you know there's nothing wrong with this meat. And Paul says, look, I understand that. I agree with you on that. But is what you eat so important to you that you are willing to destroy and make stumble a person that Jesus died for? Because when we put our fellow Christians and all the people around us in that category as a person that matters so much to God that he was willing to send his son, that matters so much to Jesus that he was willing to die for the sake of that person, do you have the right to mistreat that person? Do you have the right to make them stumble if it's within your power? You know, how important are they to you? If they're this important to God and Jesus, shouldn't they be important enough to you that you're willing to love them, that you're willing to respect them, that you're willing, again, to change what you do, even if you don't want to, even if you don't technically have to, just for their sake and for their edification? That's the way that Paul wants to frame that question, not on who's right and who's wrong, but how do you look at the people around you? Because thinking about Jesus, meditating on him and what he did and who he loves will change the way that we think about people and love the people around us as well. And then finally, I think that meditating on Jesus can help us endure through uh, suffering and temptation and various trials that we come to in life. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, specifically in Hebrews chapter 11, we have what's called the Hall of Faith, or the Hall of Fame of Faith. I've heard it called before. All of these faithful people, followers of God, whose example teaches us 
almost how to persevere to the end of the road. All of these various trials and, and struggles and challenges that were before them, yet through faith, they persevered. Through faith, uh, they, they found the end of the road. Uh, they were pleasing to God uh, at the end. And the reason that the readers of Hebrews needed that message at the time was because they were under intense persecution, so much persecution that the temptation to deny and reject and leave Jesus for their own safety weighed really heavy in their minds. I mean, you think about this question, well, if I don't deny Jesus publicly, if I don't turn away from him publicly and distance myself, I could die and my family could go hungry. My entire family could die, right? My children could die for my belief in Jesus. So when I say the temptation loomed large, I don't want you to think these were lazy people that just thought, well, I'd rather sleep in on Sunday morning, so I'm going to forsake Jesus. No, there were real stakes involved here. What's the solution to that kind of problem, that kind of temptation to leave when so much persecution and danger is before you? And the Hebrew writer says that following chapter 11 at the beginning of chapter 12, which is really the culmination of the whole thing, uh, let's turn there really quickly and and read it. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider who him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Thinking about Jesus helps us keep our eyes on the road set before us, because Jesus set the example in the face of suffering, in the face of trials, he looked beyond that to the future joy, uh, to the joy uh, of having a kingdom, of having this people called after his own name that he would redeem uh, for all eternity to live with him and his father. Um, and he did that while being mistreated, just like we so often find ourselves being mistreated. And so the Hebrew author says, you know, thinking of all these people of great faith and that you have in your mind, culminated all into one person of looking and thinking about Jesus, right? When we think about Jesus, all the problems in our life, the day-to-day struggles, uh, whether it be persecution, thankfully most of us don't deal with intense persecution in our lives at this point. We very well might, uh, and that's something we need to think on and pray about. But if we were to experience that in our day-to-day life now, it may be somebody that we work with. It may be somebody that we go to school with. It may be a family member and these things, and sometimes it's so painful to have these issues come up with people when it comes to our relationship with Jesus uh, and their judgment of that, their betrayal of us, their rejection of us because of our relationship with Jesus. But Jesus is the person we look to, right? We keep our eyes on him, just like Peter getting out of that boat onto the stormy sea. We keep our eyes on Jesus because we know what he did. We know what he looked beyond, what he endured for the joy set before him so that we can endure for the joy set before us. And so thinking about Jesus helps us endure through these struggles, endure through these challenges, and to make it to the end of that road. And so, you know, tonight my question for the people watching or anybody watching this later is, what do you think about Jesus? You know, how do you think about Jesus? When do you think about Jesus? Uh, Is Jesus somebody you just think about on Sunday mornings, uh, on Wednesday night at Bible study? 
what about on a Tuesday afternoon, right? What about Monday morning and the early commute to that new work week? What, what are we thinking about Jesus then? What does Jesus mean to us on any old day? Uh, because what we think about Jesus can greatly shape our relationship with him, our relationship with other people, and the way that we live our lives and what's important to us. And so again, uh, I would urge you, think about Jesus, read about Jesus, study Jesus's word, come to know him. Um, don't be pleased and, and happy with just a transactional relationship. Just the, the thought, well, I'll pay my dues to Jesus and one day on the day of judgment, I won't have to go to hell. Uh, really come to know him and love him. Uh, and the treasures found therein are worth more than anything else that we can imagine. So uh, thank you all again for being with us tonight. I hope that some of these things have been helpful to you. Uh, maybe that together as the church at Center Grove specifically, uh, that we can come to greater appreciate and comprehend uh, the love of Jesus as God's family here. So thank you all. We love you all. Uh, everybody stay safe, stay well, uh, enjoy the holidays, uh, have a Merry Christmas, and we'll see everybody very soon. All right. Bye.